Hey everyone, welcome back to the Kaderna Podcast. I'm Brian Kaderna. Now, if you've checked out my new book titled, What Should I Do With My Money? You'll notice several of the chapters don't immediately jibe with the conversation of personal finance. One of those is chapter six, tech. In today's episode, I sit down with Monica Eaton, the founder of Chargebacks 911, and we see just how quickly tech blends into the everyday flows of every dollar that we have. Monica Eaton is an entrepreneur, author, and thought leader specializing in cyber technology, transactional security, and payment solutions for online businesses, which is just about every business today. She has over 15 years of experience in e-commerce, payments, fraud mitigation, and fintech. Her company, Chargebacks 911, is the global leader in chargeback prevention and remediation technology. They safeguard more than 2.4 billion transactions per year on behalf of clients in 87 countries around the world. So without further ado, here is Monica Eaton in our conversation on crypto scams and your cybersecurity. Is going to require work and time and sweat and toil. If money wasn't an issue, what would I be doing? Don't worry about it. You'll figure it out. Change is the only constant. So please tell me, what exactly is a chargeback? So a chargeback is when a consumer contacts their bank instead of contacting the business owner. And what happens is as soon as they contact their bank, they receive a provisional refund. So they get like an instant gratification, an instant reward, which is one of the reasons why this problem has been growing. Um, And the worst part about this is that it's a guilty before proven innocent type of statistic. So instantly, Hmm. the business owner is debited for those funds. So for example, let's say I sell $100 worth of merchandise. Well, I make the sale. I receive money for the sale instantly because it was done through a credit card. And then my customer Six months later, three months later, you know, you can file a chargeback almost sometimes up to 365 days later. That customer contacts their credit card company and says they aren't satisfied with the product they received. There's a lot of different reasons that they can give. And their credit card company files something called a chargeback. Well, now I receive a debit for that $100 instantly. I don't have any advance notice. It just is immediately removed from my account. And then it takes up to 90 days for a judgment to be weighed against that that case. So essentially, you know, you get this uh, a chargeback case is sent to the business. The business has to pay the entire amount of the sale. They also have to pay a fee. Sometimes you have a fine and then you have a responsibility to respond or not respond. If you don't respond, then you lost all that money. If you do respond, it's a very tedious process. And again, it can take 90 days. And then the consumer still has the right to continue to, you know, fight and get their refund. So bottom line sounds like a huge pain in the neck. Yes. It's a huge pain. You don't want them. (laughs) As you're saying this, I'm like, what a nightmare. And so like what I've heard of, you know, as a consumer filing a chargeback or starting that process, it's usually because it's you see a charge on your credit card statement and you're like, I don't know what that is. I don't remember exactly. that. I don't think I ever bought that. So are you saying people, you know, often can just go and say, well, I wasn't really happy with that. So let me immediately call the credit card company and get an instant refund without almost like any explanation or work on their part. Correct. And, and you know, if you think about it, it sounds like the most horrible thing and dishonest consumers. But the reality is there has been a lot of identity theft. There are so many virtual charges that are done online. There's people that don't read terms and conditions. They buy things from apps. You know, with with COVID specifically, we have brand new demographics that aren't used to interacting with a virtual you know, Internet. And to your point, you know, it could be innocent. You just didn't recognize it. But today you can literally go to your phone app with most banks and click a button. You don't even have to contact your bank and you'll see pretty much an instant refund. So whatever you dispute, your balance on your credit card statement is going to be, is going to reflect, you know, that amount less the dispute. 
So you can kind of get the idea how this can turn into a pretty bad habit. Sure. And that's what I wanted to ask you about. It does sound like a bad habit and one that could be abused. Is there a limit for, you know, to protect then the business owners that you can't have these people going out there collecting refunds left and right? Um, I imagine there's got to be some sort of uh, measure in place where the credit card company could say, hey, you disputed two charges already this month. Now we're not going to immediately refund you anymore over a certain limit or something like that. Well, we should have another podcast on that topic. But no, unfortunately, (laughs) there's only limits. There's only limits with regard to how many chargebacks the business owner can receive. Um, Yeah, which is why we have a business. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. And so just to take a step back, so what was like what line of work or what type of product, um, you know, just to give your own personal experience, what e-commerce business did you have before you got into the current company? Um, so, so what I did, I would, I had set up, uh, like a marketplace and I had joint ventures with various companies, um, mostly luxury goods. And so unfortunately they were targeted for chargebacks. Uh, but because I shipped things international, I didn't know that there, there were products that were getting held up in customs. I had, you know, it it was just a plethora of different issues And then Mm -hmm. I also identified that there were a large number of consumers that when I interviewed them, they claimed they never contacted their bank and they never filed a chargeback. And then I discovered, you know, sometimes it's not the consumer, sometimes it's their bank. And because I, I never responded to any chargeback, I didn't even know what it was. It was just like, I would get letters and just file them away and ignore them. I, because I didn't know that I needed to respond so because I wasn't responding, then my reputation with some of these credit card companies is that they thought that I was I was doing something fraudulent. And so they were mm-hmm. proactively filing chargebacks on behalf of their consumers wow. in order to protect consumers from fraud, because not responding to anything was kind of, you know, acknowledging that, yes, this is fraud. So it just it turns into a vicious cycle. Sure. Yeah. And I'm sure a lot of people aren't, aren't, especially startups and things, not totally familiar with how that process works. Yeah. So one of the, who does that? You start, you start a business and you, you, you make sure that you know how to charge, how to refund, how to sell your product. And you focus on, you focus on that. Not very many people are focused on what could happen if six, a a pro and looking behind their shoulders at, you know, transactions, a half a percent of transactions from six months ago. Exactly. Yeah. That's uh, <laughs> it's a lot to keep track of. And so one of the things, and I want to get into kind of your, your company and what you're doing now in, in crypto and all this stuff, but just to piggyback or, or to just dive a little deeper, I should say on these chargebacks, you mentioned that when somebody contacts their bank or credit card company, they say, I didn't get this, or I was not content with this or whatever the case may be. And then instantly you have a debit on your side because they had to refund that customer Right. How does that work? Like, do all the credit card companies have just kind of carte blanche access to your business checking, and then whatever's in there, they can essentially dip their hands in there and take back their own refund? Um, they do, and you know, I found out the hard way. Not only can they take back the amount of the refund, but if you get too many chargebacks, or if your business is growing too fast, then that your your merchant processing company or the company that is debiting you also can take more funds um, and they have rights to you know create a reserve account to protect the bank in case you are committing fraud and you have because they don't want to get stuck with a scenario where they have to protect consumers and there's no funds available from the business owner got it got it so I mean, listening to some of this, how the industry works, it does sound like there's good measures in there to protect the consumer. And then the credit card company is being proactive, like you said, taking some extra reserve money um, to make that all work. But obviously, this can end up really hurting the business owner if things get out of hand, like you said. So how do you rectify this? I guess what's uh, maybe the cliff notes of what your company's doing now to, to solve that for business owners? Yeah, so so we codified 106 different um, different rules that that our technology uses to help you know really identify um, 
chargeback uh, tendencies. And, and you can use our software. Uh, we have a technology platform. So we offer software, we have APIs, and then we automate the responses to chargebacks so that it helps, you know, it helps solve some of the reputational damage that most businesses are unaware. It's, it's out of sight, out of mind until it becomes a major problem. <laughs> so the goal is to make sure that, you know, you're, you're utilizing every type of prevention mechanism in place and mm -hmm. and understanding what consumers see you we brought up a great point the majority of chargebacks are filed innocently um, by consumers because they just simply don't recognize the charge and so we help um, identify exactly what's showing on that charge and and make sure that the business owner is aware hey is this going to create more chargebacks because it doesn't have any what you're showing consumers that buy your product has nothing to do with what they purchased and there's mm -hmm. ways to to change that and make sure that it's more transparent. Um, and and, you know, when you get into different countries and different currencies and, you know, policies, I mean, it's there, there's there's a lot of technology that, that goes into play um, to make sure that you have the rice, the right risk management uh, protocols in place. Certainly. Yeah. And so now you guys, your company, Chargebacks 911, what I mentioned earlier, so you're tracking over 2.4 billion transactions a year on clients that are all over the country. <clears throat> Do you have a, a tech background? Like, how did you set up this technology that's able and capable uh, to actually do that and to do that accurately? So I... I'm self-taught. I don't have I don't have a traditional tech background, and I don't have a background in the payments industry either. Um, okay. But but um, but I've been an entrepreneur probably, geez, from the beginning of time it seems. Um, so you know, I I love technology. I love solving problems. Um, I I probably am one of those people. I I was born with that gene where I just really like to dig into things and and figure out how to solve a problem and solving this problem i was passionate about it because of course it affected my own business i wasn't sure. even aware that other businesses were as naive as i was to not know how to handle chargebacks until we constructed this technology and i wrote the first program um and and then it started getting results and we responded and I, you know i read probably 2000 pages of policies and regulations with Visa, MasterCard, et cetera. So I could learn to speak that language. And I'm thinking, you know, any e-commerce business clearly already has this down packed. It's only me that was the idiot that got into this without knowing what you do. And so what happened is the banks that I did business with started calling me and saying, hey, would you talk to some business owners that are having the same problem that are that you are? And and some of these were pretty massive businesses. And so I created Chargebacks 911. Um, initially as a blog, I was just going to sell consulting. And of course, you know, with a name like Chargebacks 911, definitely never saw myself providing any service in a corporate environment. It was more kind of a slap it to the industry because what I wanted as a merchant is I just wanted to dial 911 for emergency help. And I did not want to touch a chargeback. As a business yeah. owner, you care about your customers. You don't care about, you know, the, the small handful that are upset for one reason or another. And, you know, it's crazy. After just a few weeks, I was contacted by the New York Times, then the Wall Street Journal. And I thought, you know what? Actually, I'm going to build a, a technology platform that 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 other merchants can use. Um, that was 12 years ago. And then we expanded to serve financial institutions as well. That's pretty cool. And now it, this can obviously, we said there's there's always room for fraud in any enterprise. And especially now with, with the way that technology works, it's only exaggerated exponentially. So what are you seeing in respect to, to cybercrime? And I know a lot of the things that people out there are afraid of, whether it be, you know, just from having their identity stolen and watching their checking account disappear to, you know, all the other things that we can get into that are perhaps more noteworthy and that you see in headlines in the news. Uh, what's some of your experience so far with, you know, cybercrime? 
Um, so, so great question. I think, um, you know, what we really, we have sort of the chicken and the egg scenario going on. So we mm -hmm. have, you know, a lot of, uh, like a revolution with, with technology, right? Merchants are definitely, and business owners are, are leading the, the forge in creating new technology, removing friction, um, from the experience. And that has created a lot of momentum, but, it, we also have this complete shift in consumer behavior, um, and it, you know, and that makes things really challenging. Is it is it technology that's creating loopholes to exploit, or is it consumer behavior? And are we training consumers to, you know, adopt new standards that are unreasonable? Um, and and specifically, like you know, many of us have so many different accounts. We feel secure because we see technology has advanced to such a point that we may still use the same password on every single device we have, because who cares? My bank is going to take care of me. They're secure. I trust them. And actually I'm not care. I don't care about security anymore. I just care about, you know, having one less click, getting my merchandise tomorrow, actually in the next hour would be good. <laughs> These are the yeah. things that, you know, social media, I, I mean, so that it really is a catalyst. Um, so I think, you know, when we take a look at, where is there, you know, more development in scams? It's really exploiting some of these, you know, some of these behaviors and loopholes. So crypto scams, I mean, that's off the charts, right? Digital currencies yeah. and, and it's, that's piggybacking on, you know, this safe mentality that consumers have almost brainwashed themselves into thinking because the industry has done a great job making people feel safe when they enter their card online. You know, you you rarely, I think all of us have received those SMS messages that say, hey, did you recognize this charge? And our banks mm -hmm. are catching fraud before we do. So we we have this false sense of security. So why wouldn't we, you know, go do an investment in, in a digital currency? It's a currency. It's, you know, we, we have this false sense of security that, that, Unfortunately, you know, we're taking things for granted that actually don't exist. Um, uh, emails yeah. like, you know, phishing scams, et cetera. I think that's those are new exploitable opportunities that are starting to grow, mainly because since COVID, we have virtually every demographic now is engaging digitally. So, you know, prior to COVID, there were still specific demographics where they didn't buy everything online. They didn't download apps. They didn't do their banking through apps. And today, mm -hmm. you know, the whole world has become digital. It's become virtual. And this is just a way of life. So what? just to, to interrupt right there, if you don't mind, we talked a little bit about phishing and stuff. You have these business email compromise or the BEC. I know that's considered like the costliest uh, scheme out there that, that people are perpetrating. Uh, then you have ransomware. You have these different ones you hear of. There's, you know, the social engineering scams. What do people maybe really need to hone in on? Because like you said, they're getting a false sense of security of, well, my my banks or my institutions that I work with are watching my back. They're sending me these notifications before anything even happens. Yet we see that just by the numbers, the amount of fraud that's successful and actually, you know, being perpetrated is just expanding every single year. So it's like, we feel like we're doing better, but obviously maybe we're not just by the, the fact of the matter, the, the results that we see. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I think that what, what we see in terms of, you know, how, how fraud, fraud is being reimagined, right? There's a lot of, um, engineering that is going on in the fraud space and and you know it's it's happening with uh with consumers it's happening with criminals as well um and i and i think part of that has it it, it really has to do with um the way that data has changed and the value of data you know it used to be that you know criminals would would go after getting credit card numbers Credit card numbers, like who cares about credit card numbers anymore? Really, the thing that is, you know, most threatening to a consumer and most valuable to a criminal is going to be their personal information, behaviors, 
Um, and, you know, we see this with um, some of the SIM hacking, the SIM swap scams that have happened with crypto and, you know, people getting access. What you what you want to do is you want to know, you know, how can I pretend like I'm this customer and, you know, all the social engineering that goes on. Um, tricking banks to give information so that you can use that information. And it's a long term, you know, strategy. It's more of strategic fraud, right? It's not, you know, let me get a card and then and and make a charge and get as much money as I can. The card gets reported as lost or stolen. And, you know, and that's it. It's really, you know, a much more strategic um, evolution. So mm-hmm. I think for, for consumers, we need to be um a lot more cautious about I, I always preach this about passwords you know use password control use different passwords um but also shy away from from things that you don't have a protection on um like you know it's great to have a crypto account fine um and diversify but utilizing those funds to purchase something that could go wrong you won't have any fallback and and then, you know, if you have <clears throat> all of us have our entire lives sitting on our phone and on our yeah. computer. So, you know, what kind of protection do you have on your phone? And and, you know, there's there's still many, uh, many phone carriers that don't require, you know, two auth or uh, dual authentication. They don't require pins as a consumer. You can opt in to create additional pins, to create additional security, to have ad- additional phone numbers, to make sure that your phone number can't get ported to someone else's number. Um, these are things that, you know, it seems like tedious, um, almost conspiracy theory, like why would you go through all of this? It's safe. Uh, that's well worthwhile, I-, I think, in today's environment. Yeah, no, very good advice there. But I guess that one of the questions I have is, you mentioned the false sense of security that we're getting from the text notifications, some of those things where there's like, okay, there's some protocol here where people are looking out for us. I think there's a combination of that. Then also with the other end of the spectrum of people out there just saying, my information's already out there. And I know that I know target, you know, can get hacked or my credit card company can get hacked. And then you have, you know, a hundred thousand, you know, credit card files out there that are God knows where. And, and, they're getting bought and sold on the black market. And you hear so many of these stories. I mean, I've had probably three or four credit cards where, you know, Bank of America comes back and says, there could have been something compromised somewhere along the chain. So we're just going to send you a new credit card to be safe. And then you have to go set up all your auto, you know, debits and all those things that you do, all your auto charges. So I think like that's the other side is people almost accept the fact that they've lost a lot of their privacy. And I mean, maybe what can you speak to that? Because I think a lot of people kind of throw their hands up in the air and say, you know, I'll try and do the simple things like change my password, but there's a good chance somebody out there who knows where has my name, has my social, has an old phone number. They know my password to LinkedIn or to Facebook. And it's like all that data kind of exists somewhere. Um, you're, you're absolutely right. And I think a lot of people sit back and think, you know, what, it's there. Um, but you know, we're, we're still in control of that. Um, so for example, uh, there are, we had, I, I was reading a case study actually out of the UK recently, and it was, um, talking about, you know, just, uh, security protocols for, for, for cell phone carriers and, and the amount of people that have, you know their um, their their number. Um, it did. It's not even a, a connected or it's a disconnected number. So you set up your cell phone maybe ten years ago, and you don't ever change your cell phone, but you never actually update that the recovery phone number is a different phone number. That recovery phone number may not even exist. Maybe it goes to your ex. Maybe it goes. I mean, it's just little things like that where, you, and I think it's important to make things current not not just passwords but also you know set up your right um addresses make sure that things are current um also the simplest thing check your bank balances and your credit card balances utilizing apps like mint uh, of these types of apps intuit has this great program but 
essentially what you do is you can put in all of your credit cards. And I say this because in the US, the average consumer has 3.8 cards. So let's say each of us have four cards in our wallet and they, mm -hmm. we're probably using them for different things. We have recurring subscriptions. We have this, we have that. Well, here's what happens with fraudsters. They, they, they get your buying path. And so maybe, you know, you, you use Amazon and 40% of our transactions today in the U S are from Amazon. All of us are using Amazon. Well, now you have these four cards and instead of using all four cards randomly to buy things from Amazon, just use one and then make sure that you look at it because chances are at the end of the month, maybe you would notice, and this is what a fraudster would do, there could be a charge that says Amazon X. Well, that is fraud and it could just be for $5.80. It could be for $100. You're looking at it, you're scanning it, and you're just saying, yeah, I buy a lot of things from Amazon. I can't remember what I bought, but it looks legit. Now, if you use all of your cards, well, you don't even know. And I'll tell you, like for our business and for businesses specifically, all of us probably do business with Google AdWords. And I cannot even tell you how many how many other businesses I've talked to that have, we've been scammed on our own business cards because we have multiple cards that you that are used for Google AdWords. Well, then, you know, you you look at what your normal budget would be. It fluctuates up. It fluctuates down. And I'm assuming, hey, this is our budget for marketing. Clearly, if it says Google AdWords, it must be legit. Well, guess what? No, actually, our card number was stolen. It's being used by a criminal who's also using it for Google AdWords. <laughs> and, and I mean, but it's like it's that smart. Right. Yeah. So so like it isn't it isn't about let me steal a card and get caught. It's let me steal this information and never get caught. So this person, they shop at Target, they buy this, they buy that. You know what? I'm just going to emulate their same behavior because most consumers are a bit lazy. We have auto payment. We don't check our statement. Nobody writes checks anymore. And you look at things maybe every few months. You're not going to so catch it. Yep. So they're essentially mimicking the, the person that they victimized so that 100%. then those credit card companies don't raise any red flags. They don't really notice it quite yet. Right. And it, yeah. it, that's exactly what's happening. It's scary. Yeah, it's that's wild. And now if you're on the the unfortunate side of that where you are the victim and let's say you're being vigilant, you check your bank balances, your your portfolio every day. And then all of a sudden, because I have seen this, you get that $30,000, you know, withdrawal from your checking account. This is a true story. Actually, I saw a $30,000 withdrawal for international phone fees. Uh, and it, it was just absolutely outrageous. And it's like, how did, first off, how did that carrier that they're not even using not flag, you know, what was over $30,000 of charges for international calling or whatever that was. So when you see that, I know you can then report it, but then apparently from what I've heard, the process to go through to actually then recoup that $30,000 of, you know, stolen money can be extremely lengthy and not even guaranteed. And so the follow-up, I know that's kind of a lengthy question, but where would identity theft protection come in where you see a lot of these, uh, you know, companies out there say that they'll cover, you know, maybe up to a million dollars of fraud. So is, is that the only kind of buffer to say, okay, I can immediately get reimbursed kind of like going back to the chargeback conversation yeah, or does I that mean... victim have to just kind of wait it out and hope that they recoup all that money? Yeah, I, I mean, identity theft protection is kind of like your insurance policy, right? So that's mm -hmm. that's definitely why, and and you can fall back on that. Um, but I also encourage you know any consumer to make sure that you know you understand your rights and and read about it, um, and you know just do your own research. Uh, so not every bank is has the same policies. You know, they they can choose to do things in a different way, but uh, they they are regulated very much the same. And and so if you rather than just call and if you're given, you know, the, the go around and specifically if you haven't authorized something and it literally if it's an amount like 30 grand and it's coming out of your account and this is something that is not characteristic um, th that you should be able to 
to definitely pursue some quick relief on that. Um, yes, you're going to have to fill out a bunch of forms and, and jump through hoops and probably go file a police report, but you shouldn't be in a position where, you know, you're left holding things where it gets complicated and where it is much more challenging and it is going to take a lengthy process is if you participated in the authorization at all. So that's where it gets tricky. If you participate in an authorization and then you say, well, but I was scammed and you didn't use your credit card and you didn't use your debit card because Visa, MasterCard, American Express, Discover, all of these companies, because you're a member and you have a card, you have a lot of rights to charge back, to push back, and you're going to get immediate refunds. And you have, I would never recommend buying anything online if you do not use a card because yep. the protections the that you have yep. yeah, are off the charts. Yep. But you know, if if you do, if you have, let's say you have a Zelle payment or it's P2P uh, or peer-to-peer, um, it, if it's some type of wire authorization, et cetera, crypto is another uh, example. But if you are found to be involved in, in anything during that authorization, um, you're going to, that's going to be a more sticky situation. So, so for those things, yeah. just recognize you do not well, have same protection yep. to do your research. And I think that's where a lot of people get scared is, you know, they could say that, well, did you have any authorization, you know, throughout this process? And you say, well, no, but in the technical sense you did, because if somebody was able to gain access to your, your email or your phone or whatever it may have been, you know, you, it wasn't you personally, but you, your identity gave access or authorization for that charge. And I think that kind of comes back to like how many layers, you know, the criminal can essentially penetrate uh, to be acting on your behalf. And I I mean, I imagine that's where it can just get so difficult where, you know, the bank or the company can say, look, you authorized X, Y and Z on three different occasions. And then the victim is saying, I didn't do any of that. Like somebody had access to these various accounts uh, to go ahead and carry that out. And and there's. It's it's definitely it's a very sticky situation. There's there's lots of fraud that gets reported um, between spouses, between households, where you, you would not believe it. Somebody makes a transfer, you know, using their mother's cell phone, and then uh, the mother says, "Hey, well, that wasn't authorized." Well, was it really not authorized? Because it you never reported that your phone was taken. Your phone was used for the transaction. And now we're discovering that it was your son that did this. So, so it's, it is, you know, it's not authorized, but you know, if, if you have a personal device, then just like you said, you're responsible for maintaining security on that personal device. Um, And and it does take a a much, it takes a lot more effort to prove um, that, you know, a, a SIM card was taken or, you know, yeah, it, that's, that's tricky. Yeah. And now just to kind of pivot a little bit, I know one of the commonalities you're seeing in a lot of this cyber crime is crypto. And when you hear about, you know, the big ransomware attack or whatever it may have been, this anonymous criminal out there is often asking that the ransom or whatever it is be made paid in the form of crypto or Bitcoin. What's your take on that? Because it is still like they're the governments are starting to think about regulating this, but it's still somewhat of like the wild, wild west. How is that affecting business? And what are you seeing maybe in chargebacks, if it's relevant at all to that? What is crypto doing to that space right now? Um, I think <clears throat> I think the scare with some of the fraud that's happened in crypto is probably pushing, um, you know, is pushing consumers to make sure that you know, they use they use other payment methods when they're purchasing things online. Um, and and there's been um, a lot that has been publicized about the fact that, you know, it really is it really is a wild, wild west. Um, that said, you know, for some of these these large purchases, um, I mean, there's a lot of advantages to paying crypto and receiving crypto, depending on who you are and what the transaction is. Um but you know it is it's a volatile currency it's very very difficult to regulate because of that vol- the, the the volatility um i personally think you know when you if you 
if you have a body that is going to regulate something that is used for payments, then this this body that creates the regulations and the policies should actually, you know, this should be probably within the payments industry. And the challenge, yes, you need the government support for some of the regulation because we do need protections that are built in place. Um, that absolutely is is vital to create some sustainability here and also protect consumers and frankly just protect the currency and the whole business model. Um, but we need to make sure that that you know the the laws that are being created and the insight and the innovation around this is is drafted. Um, it, it, we don't we don't want it overregulated. We need to make sure that that we utilize domain expertise and so. You know, I'm a fan of government, you know, assisting, but not I, but I do think that that this is a payments function and where it comes into payments, then there should be, you know, some collaborative efforts in making sure that that we really keep that as a payments function within the ecosystem, um, because I think there's also additional risk if if we take that and separate it and now you know, there's CDBC. I mean, there's there's a lot of discussion about digital currencies today um, and there could be conflicts of interest. I just think it's it's a lot um, more complex subject uh, than people realize at first glance. It, it definitely is. And, and I wanted to ask you your own opinion. Um, would you are you a proponent of crypto? Like, do you think it's here to stay? I think crypto is here to stay. Um, I don't think it's going to go away. I, I think that there's um, a lot that, you know, needs that it, it's, it's, look, it's, it's in the process of evolving um, constantly. And, you know, I don't think that we will see um, stability and, and a sustainable uh, currency until the right protection mechanisms are in place. And, and I also think that there's plenty of attention on those problems, um, but it again, it, it will take more of a collaborative effort. This isn't something that I think you can carve out on the side and say, let's just create a mechanism for this. Um, other countries, I think, are ahead of us in terms of, you know, looking at a, a better and a, a more layered approach that is collaborative with some data sharing. Um, and I mean, look, fraud across the board. One of the issues with fraud regardless if it's crypto or not, right? There's a lack of transparency and that needs to be solved for the entire for the entire economy. It doesn't make any sense that today uh, a bank is is supposed we have all of this in, intelligence and technology, but every bank effectively operates in their own silo. And you know when it comes to fraud, there should be much more collaboration. there should be shared fraud data. And the more data that we have and, and the data sets rather are also continuing to increase. So, you know, who cares about IP addresses any longer? You have device ID, you have biometrics. Um, there's there's a lot of sophistication that I think really need to be leveraged so that we create more of a blockchain environment in terms of fraud management. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. It, there definitely needs to be some regulation if it's going to be legitimized and it just seems like at least if you follow kind of anecdotally what's going on with cryptocurrency, the biggest headlines, the biggest transfers of wealth through crypto have all been through cybercrime. Right. Yeah, I, I haven't I haven't seen any marquee purchase or, or sale that's occurred, you know, all through crypto, you know, maybe a little bit here or there. You might hear of a, a pro athlete taking a salary or a bonus in the form of crypto or something. But where I think it's, you know, most notable and most infamous is when you hear, you know, something, one of these ransomware attacks and they want, you know, $50 million in the form of Bitcoin. Right. And so that, you know, that that's a little scary, obviously, especially when you're seeing younger generations and, and millennials and those following uh, are really trying to embrace it. And, and they like some of the deregulation away from just one standard currency. Um, so. It definitely yeah, has support. And yeah. yeah. But, but I think if you take a look at, you know, any emerging market, any emerging idea, right? Unfortunately, I think criminals always get there first. 
Um, True. <laughs> and and they kind of they kind of inspire the innovation and the architecture that's required um, because you you know you you suffer the consequences. It's sort of like you know we all have to fail our way to success regardless of what avenue we're exploring. And and with crypto, I think it's like here's this idea. And then we're going to experience all the issues with this first <laughs> so yeah, that, yeah. you know, we know what needs to be done to now be able to create an environment, an environment where this idea can become can become maybe what it, it was designed to to be in the first place. Yeah. And I just want to ask to kind of tie it all together. So obviously you started this company trying to solve the the epidemic, if you will, of chargebacks for e-commerce companies. Is that only respective to credit cards? Like if someone, if crypto does grow and, and people want to go transact on the internet and buy something through their Bitcoin account, is there any recourse like there would be where if all of a sudden I didn't get the product I was supposed to, boom, I could call Visa up and, and immediately get my refund. Is that only through credit cards? Do you see that expanding elsewhere to other forms of payment? Yeah, so we do, we support um, the majority of alternative payment methods. Uh, we also support digital currencies such as, you know, if you're an airline and you have, uh, you know, um, loyalty points, believe it or not, like that's a digital currency. It has a cash value in the market. And there's fraud that goes on between, you know, customers that transfer and steal points. <laughs> so, you know, anything that that has a, a value that can get abused um, really what we do, another way of thinking it about it is post-sale fraud. So everybody is familiar with the pre-sale fraud. That's a fraud filter. You want to prevent the fraud. But then once the sale happens, now you have, you know, this post-sale environment and, and all sorts of fraud can still occur after that fact. When it comes to crypto, then, you know, uh, yes, I, I think um, I think that things will continue to evolve, and and absolutely, you know, we we have um, different avenues that that we were engaged in um, currently to support some of the some of the evolution in that space. Um, but today, there are avenues that can be used if you have crypto and you want to you know purchase something in crypto and be protected by your Visa card or your MasterCard because uh, many of the, the card brands today have now partnered with you know, some of the, the crypto um, platforms. So you can, you can pay with your Visa card, but it's operating more like a wallet um, for your crypto. And, and to me, if I, was, if I was buying something and I wanted to pay for in crypto, I would definitely, I would use that to fund a wallet and then actually pay with my Visa card <laughs> because, because you do want to make sure that you have those protections in place. Now, the problem is you don't have any protection on the fluctuating and the volatile currency rate. So whatever you pay today, that's all that you're going to get. Um, exactly. So there's, yep. there's some nuances there for sure. <laughs> Yep. Um, but at least, you know, you can use something that has uh, a stable protection mechanism, uh, you know, as a front end layer that that otherwise you wouldn't have anything at all. Got it. Yeah. And I think that last piece you mentioned is something definitely to keep in mind is the volatility of the value of that underlying currency is something that's a whole nother story. It's so unique because you think the U.S. dollar is what it is. You could benchmark it to other currencies or see how it holds value just versus inflation. But then you talk about cryptocurrency and you say, all right, I got $100 of Bitcoin You know, at the beginning of 2021. Well, now that's essentially that same level of Bitcoin is worth $50 at the end of the year. Um, you know, that that can add a lot of complexity to the the time lag in these transactions. For sure. Yeah, it, may, yeah. it definitely makes things a lot more complicated. Sure. And uh, maybe this we could say for another episode, because so many of these topics and, and I hope we're we're doing, you know, justice to, I think, kind of how important this conversation is. But I know it can get very deep and very complex. I wanted to ask you about AI. Obviously, ChatGPT has kind of taken the world by storm a little bit in the first couple months so far this year, even though I don't think a lot of people totally understand what it does other than being kind of like another Siri. Um, anything that you could add on AI, maybe as a closing note in, in the space that you deal with of 
chargebacks and now the exposure to cryptocurrency? Yeah. So again, it all comes down to data, right? And AI, we, we use AI, we have machine learning. We're actually um, doing some things with chat GPT ourselves as well. Um, really, you know, I, I'm actually so excited about, I've, I've always said like what we do in chargebacks is kind of like blockchain and it is about, it's always the goal is to create transparency and then make decisions that are data driven. And when it comes to, you know, chargebacks, it's such a manual, arduous process that's very, very old. It was designed in the 70s. And these mechanics really haven't changed that much. So I'm like extremely excited about all of the all of the new tech in the space um, and the plugins that are available. Um, you know, I think that things are only going to get better. And as the world, you know, utilizes more and more adaptive technology i think that's also better the you know we're we're we can't operate with these static data sets when things are evolving so rapidly we really need dynamic technology that can adjust uh you know if and and we need to be able to take in every piece of data something that i've learned in my industry in chargebacks is that every single piece of data has value if you don't think it has value, you just don't have enough context. You don't have enough relationships, but then you'll discover patterns that it has, relationships that it has, and it tells a story. And utilizing, you know, AI learning uh, or AI along with machine learning, um, I think you're still going to need some human input, of course. But to to think, you know, we're we're moving in a direction where we can create data driven decisions and really optimize that intelligence that's super exciting it is it really is and it's crazy to think this story of you know chargebacks it kind of it gives you a, a whole story arc of like where money begins how it goes to a product to the 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 business and then back and you kind of follow this whole circle of you know what the consumer expected and then what the business provided and the exchange of wealth therein and um yeah, it does. It leads to just obviously a very broad conversation here. So any closing thoughts uh, that you have, Monica, that that would be worthwhile for you know our listeners here? Um, man, what closing thoughts would I have? Uh, I would say uh, stay stay tuned and listen to listen to Brian. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, I, listen, it's this has been an intelligent conversation. I love having conversations that, you know, there's there's interest and we can explore, you know, different avenues. I think there's, there needs to be more discussion about a lot of these topics um, to flesh mm -hmm. out, uh, just, just create more awareness um, because things that people don't hear about, they don't get interested in and people need to recognize taking an interest in these things. This, this is, this is affecting us. It's affecting the whole world and it affects how we do business. Yeah. Yeah, that that's spot on. And and that's even what I've tried to talk about in my book. And even when I'm doing seminars and things is, is that money tells the whole story. And, and when you follow the dollars, it, it kind of clarifies things. And I think back in the day, a lot of people used to say, well, you know, I want to go buy this widget from this company, I go to the cash register, I hand them a $10 bill, they hand me the product, and then we're done. That same exchange is happening. But now it's all kind of out there in, in right. this e-commerce world. And it's, I think you just have to kind of go with the times, like you're saying that that's the age we live in. It's the same transaction. It's just, there's all these extra layers of complexity. And what blows my mind, not to go on a tangent is everything just seems to be dictated by speed. Like how fast can we, you know, open and close this transaction, you know, all across the world it's like at lightning pace, but then to rectify some of these situations, it could seem like it takes forever. And oh, I think 100%. that's where it, it there's just got to be ways. And I'm, like you're saying, I'm sure we can improve upon these lines of communication so that, you know, if that person's disputing, you know, the charge, they can contact Visa or whoever discover, and then they can contact you. And it's like, why can't we almost have like a, a group email of somebody said, I thought I bought this. You know, they're immediately you, yeah. on the same chain. Right. Yeah, with, with the bank and with the right. Yeah, click a button. No, I yeah. I, I, always, I always say it's... um one of the biggest challenges, I think, you know, industry wide, 
uh, is that we are, we have, we always think that we want to build a better version of the world. And, and really, we, that is not what we need. We don't need a better version of the old world. The rest of the world is new. It's a new world. It actually has nothing like the old world. <laughs> it's brand new. <laughs> so stop thinking of the legacy mentality that, you know, I just want the same 10 steps, but I want it faster. No, those 10 steps are now two. And actually, they're not even they're not even within those 10. It's a totally different. It's totally different. And yeah. we have to, you know, that's real innovation. It's not just making things faster. It's not just, you know, speeding up the current process. It's actually analyzing that the existing scenario, which is nothing like it was before. And then, you know, creating solutions that fit that purpose. That's I couldn't have said it better. And I think that's kind of a good closing point there. Um, I really appreciate you coming on the show here, Monica. This is very interesting. I think we could have an hour conversation on each little uh, story <laughs> that, that that we shared. Um, but I think if for nothing else, if if all the listeners out there just take away kind of the the gravity of what technology is doing, and that we just have to at least all have kind of a base knowledge. Um, you know, my world's personal finance. I feel like. For a second, like I'm stepping out of my lane, having this conversation, only to come back and realize everything we're talking about is the transfer of money. And 100%. so we've all got to be, uh, you know, at least a little bit up to speed on on what's transpiring right now. Right. Well, great. Well, thank you so much for having me. And um, yeah, great discussion. Yep. Likewise, we'll be in touch. And everyone, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Kaderna podcast. I'm your host, Brian Kaderna. Today, we listened to, with Monica Eaton the founder of Chargebacks 911. You can learn more about her in the show notes and we will see you next time. This podcast is intended for the general public and for informational purposes only. The show does not provide any recommendations or investment advice regarding any specific account type, service, strategy, or product, or to otherwise act in any fiduciary or other capacity. Please contact a financial professional for guidance and information that is specific to your situation. Brian Kaderna does not provide tax or legal advice. Please contact your accountant or legal advisor to discuss your situation. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Park Avenue Securities, Guardian, or Kaderna Financial Team, and opinions stated are their own. All investments contain risk and may lose value. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. References to specific securities, asset classes, and financial markets are for illustrative purposes only and do not constitute a solicitation, offer, or recommendation to purchase or sell a security. Brian Kaderna is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS, OSJ, 300 Broadacres Drive, Suite 175, Bloomfield, New Jersey, 07003, phone number 973-244-4420. Securities products and advisory services offered through PAS, member FINRA, SIPC. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Kaderna Financial Team is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. California Insurance License Number 0K04194.